Welcome to Real Parents, Real Results. Today I'm talking to SJ Barraconi again, a creative educational disruptor, founder of SBSL. In so many words, he's a self-proclaimed education Sherpa, a consultant, mentor, family advisor, group facilitator, super connector, guest blogger, and futurist. SJ is a lifelong Ohioan with boundless appreciation for people, entrepreneurship, liberty, and learning. Welcome, SJ. Thank you so much for um, the opportunity to share with your audience again, and I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. And did I say Ohioan or Ohioan correctly, since I'm not from Ohio? You can say it either way. Um, I usually put the accent on Ohioan. Okay. Um, but then again, as it states, I'm a lifelong Ohioan, so it's easy for me, right? Right. <laughs> Good. So last time I spoke with you, you recommended some books that I read by uh, John Taylor Gatto, who is a uh, former school teacher, and I was able to get my hands on Dumbing Us Down. I listened to it on audio, but it more or less blew my mind. A lot of it was from speeches that he had given uh, when he accepted Teacher of the Year awards. And they were not pro-education, public education industry. Do, do you think that Mr. Gatta would be able to give those speeches today? That is a great question. I would say yes, but at the, I guess we'll use the term risk of his reputation being definitely more sullied, more, you know, the, the metaphorical term, Tara, is he would get more arrows in his back if he did that today. So I would say yes, but with the caveat, number one, he's got his reputation will take more of a hit. But then again, I personally believe that your character is more important than your reputation. And then second, I think the venues that would welcome him would be less numerous. However, he would still find his audience. So with those two qualifiers, those caveats, I believe he would still be able to share this, um, this messaging. Yeah, I, I, I'm just thinking that today's level of bureaucracy is greater than it was in the early 90s when he said those words. And I'm envisioning one of those big, uh, <laughs> uh, those long canes that they used in, what was it, vaudeville to drag someone off the stage. That That's right. If they did that today, that someone would be dragging him right off the stage with one of those things. I think there is something to be said for that. Now, again, I like your comment about the bureaucracy. I may have said this on the first appearance, but if I, whether I did or didn't, it bears repeating. I'm going to put a little substitute word though. So I will state first the way that my first mentor uh, mentioned it, and then I will substitute the word. So here's how it goes. All companies are born entrepreneurially and they die bureaucratically. So now let me do the word sub. All 
institutions, or you could also say organizations, are born entrepreneurially and die bureaucratically. That would describe very well the conventional system of classroom learning that has been active as the predominant means of delivery in this nation of America, as well as other Western countries, since it first started to show up in the 1850s. So with that said, we've gotten 30 or so years down the line and you see what my point is, see what the point is, is we are getting closer to the death bureaucratically than we were in the 90s when he made the talks. Do you follow what I'm saying there? Yes, I do. Yes, and I was thinking that the whole time as I was listening to his words, he had some, he had some one-liners in there that, that stuck with me that uh, government monopoly schools are structurally unreformable that we don't live in communities anymore. We live in networks. And uh, I think that's very true today. Uh, and the original purpose of school was to regulate the poor uh, and social engineering. Uh, I've always suspected that was the case and uh, I'm glad somebody said it. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, those three, those three, uh phrases, if you will, or concepts, themes. So those spoke to you the most as a, as a hostess of this podcast, as a mom, as a member of your local community. Is that a good way to sum it up? Yes. Well, let me offer for you and your audience a little bit of elaboration to those. And again, you could take these multitude of different ways. So structurally unreformable, I couldn't agree more. If you think of all of the times that you've heard in the public discourse, you know, the water cooler talk, if you will, of society, whether it's at a kitchen table or a workplace or church, synagogue, whatnot, think about all the times you've heard the word reform used. You know, just feel free even to journal a little bit, write it down. Every time you hear the word reform, I'll give you a couple quick examples. Campaign finance reform, health care reform. Those are the two that pop up immediately. Well, every time you hear it, it is almost exclusively a top-down approach versus a grassroots bottom-up approach. So what is he saying? In another way of thinking through that, he's saying that the institution of school is unreformable structurally because you cannot improve it from the top down. See what I'm, see what, see what I'm getting at there? Yes. Which is why, in, as an education Sherpa, as a disruptor, as those words that you were kind enough to introduce me with, you will not hear me talk with any household or workplace or any other entity or individual and mention reform, because I know better. I am also a historian. And you look at the last 170 years or so since the 1850s, 
And since the institution began in Massachusetts and spread over time to eventually become predominant in this nation, it has gotten so entrenched and so bureaucratic that anything top down will simply not work. So anytime you or your audience going forward hear some authority, some elected official talk about reform, please think through deeply. And I would encourage you to ask some very pointed questions of that person. Be respectful, of course, but ask questions because I can tell you that that has become more of a talking point than something that can structurally be done like Gatto mentioned in his speeches and in that book. So that's my first thought. So before I tackle the next one, um, what are your thoughts on that as, again, as a mom, as a hostess in the other hats you are wearing? My thought is, I hear what you're saying, uh, top down um, is, not, is not going to work because, because of how strong the, the, the bureaucracy is. And yes, the, the word reform has become a, a buzzword, political talking point, bumper sticker that people put on their cars to to feel better but um really I, I guess i would i would wonder what the how how to go about the grassroots approach then right so now let, that's a great lead into the other um the other point that's stuck in your mind is the comment about communities versus networks there is definitely a difference I don't have an immediate book to point to on this topic. I'd have to think it through a little bit. I'd be happy to do a quick cross check of what I've read and or what I've come upon. But think of it this way. A community tends to be more local, not exclusively, of course, we're not putting things into boxes here because there's definitely crossover. It's like a Venn diagram. But a network tends to be a little bit more, it spans more of a distance. It tends to be larger, a little harder to control, if you will. There is a concept out there that goes by different names. The name that I know it the best by is the rule of 150, which says that if an entity is bigger than 150 persons, people, it becomes much more challenging to be organized in an effective as well as an efficient way. A community, or as Seth Godin called it, a tribe, okay, or as Sir Edmund Burke taught centuries before these gentlemen called it a, a mini platoon, is a whole lot more malleable and a whole lot more amenable to a bottom-up approach than a network is. So in my business life, more my B2B side of things for my workplace stuff in my educational uh, profession, I like to talk all the time about tribes, mini platoons, and communities. And I don't really talk a lot about the concept of networks or networking because I put it through that worldview. I put it through that lens. So we have gotten in the conventional system so far down the bureaucratic 
path at this point that the law of inertia, the law of diminishing marginal returns have completely taken hold. So it's gonna require a community-based approach where you get groups of parents, groups of business leaders, groups of faith leaders, nonprofits, et cetera, to get together, form these smaller units. And whether you call them any of these things, whether you use a mastermind, whether you use a round table, a cohort, that is how you can make the impact. And that is what Gata was getting at in that second of the three points you brought up. So uh, for your audience, as well as yourself, since I am your guest and I'm doing my best to empower and educate and such, what are your thoughts on that? My thought is, he was saying this in the early 90s, uh, before social media, as when I think of network, I think of, uh, you know, if I want to meet someone outside of my town, I might go on social media and look for someone who has a specific interest that, or that I'm looking for something in common with and easily find that person. In 1991, when he was saying this, that there wasn't any such thing. So um, I'm not sure how, how he even meant network, but uh, if he was telling the future, that's, that was accurate. Do you, what do you think that he was getting at with with network in the early 90s? Oh, that is a good counter question. Didn't mean to well, stump you, just curious. No, no, no. This is what a dialogue is, a rational discourse, um, which is my preferred method of communication. I may have said this you know, to your audience on my first appearance, but I personally don't believe in arguments or debates because I think that at best they're a win-lose proposition and often they're a lose-lose. But I appreciate a rational discourse with dialectic. I appreciate a in-depth discussion. So that question definitely fits. My thinking is he was probably referring to your local neighborhood because think about how the suburbs were designed by the urban city planners as we moved out of the World War II era into the um, 50s and beyond. Think about how most neighborhoods were organized, right? Did you not have cul-de-sacs? Did you not have these planned communities, right? I suspect he was talking about that because think about the way that your conventional school system is structured, right? It's geographic based. And over the years, there's been some loosening of those of those structures, you know, but to this very day, the geographic basis of the system is still there, right? So that's what my gut instinct is telling me is he was probably speaking of your local cul-de-sac, maybe your local PTA, uh, maybe if, you know, local mom's group, um, because back then too, um, there was probably, and I don't have any demographic numbers on this, so if someone in your audience does, feel free to share it with, with Tara and or me, but I think there were, back in the 90s, maybe more homemakers, stay-at-home moms than there were up until uh, COVID, right, when COVID started to tip it back. So with that said, that's what I think he was getting at. Yeah, I agree. 
And then now when we look at that third point, which is the last one you made about regulating the poor, that one is definitely controversial. Yes. But, but or however, or yet, or on the other hand, pick your favorite way of transisting. There's a lot of truth to it because the committee of 10, which standardized the deployment, the spreading of this conveyor belt factory model um, as we were gearing up for the new century about seven years later, they were, when you look at their names and what their professions were, just look at the list of the committee of 10, I think you can make a very persuasive case without arguing or debating that they were all aristocrats, they were all elites. So what throughout history, if you think about some of the most monastic, not monastic, um, I'm thinking of not manners, I'm thinking of monarchies, right? Think about your most well-known historical examples of monarchies. I think you can point to the French aristocracy. Um, you could point to the English. And then you can make a case for the Spanish under Ferdinand and Isabella. And there's certainly others, right? Well, think about those. Aristocrats elites have historically had a pretty strong grip on the levers of society. So as we were structuring this new model, which was being overlaid with the ongoing industrial revolution and the urb urbanization of America from a small town rural agricultural age to a blue collar and then a later a white collar industrial age, there's an absolute strong case that can be made, um, controversial or not, uh, Tara, for these schools to be run by aristocratic elites as a regulatory device for the poor. And later, of course, you can make a case that as more people entered the middle class, same thing for them. But think about it. The aristocrats, the elites of any society, even if you think about how it was in the former Soviet Union, you think about the um, Polar Bureau, they had their dachas on the Black Sea, right? Well, they always lived differently than the, um, than the uh, so-called commoners or unwashed masses, um, different ways to describe them, right? So I think Gatto was onto something there and it's a little bit of a cold slap in the face, but I think a lot more parents and other concerned citizens, grandparents, business owners, church leaders, et cetera, Tara have to face this and I think if the coronavirus era offered us anything, it offers us an opportunity to face institutions in our society and really ask the hard questions. Why are we going to a physical office anymore? Why are we sending our kids to this institution just because I went to it and my parents went to it and their parents went to it? Why are we letting existing political parties dominate the discourse? What about new voices? Why is the major mass media supposedly the only resources we should count on and everything else is supposedly not accurate? 
See, these are questions you have to ask. And I think Gatto got us started. He was very courageous back in the early 90s. So there's some thoughts for you. What say you? Yes, he, uh, well, uh, as the point starts off regulating the poor, yes, we ha- in this day and age, we have to add middle class into that. So I know, and I, I've seen it even on my local level, that uh, the leadership comes from, you know, it, it's all being orchestrated from a top group of elites. They've trained the executioners of their mission very well. Uh, parents like myself, I have gone to school board meetings more so lately and spoken. And usually all we get is, thank you for sharing your thoughts with us. And nothing ever happens. It's, uh, it's like pretend, you have a voice. Yeah, you can say it. Um, it's not gonna change anything, but you can say, you can say it without facing the guillotine. Well, that's nice. Uh, you know, I don't know what kind of numbers I need to get behind me to, for anything to change. Do we need angry mobs with pitchforks to, to start really changing things and getting further than being thanked for our sharing our thoughts? Uh, but you could see, I can see it even on, even where I live, the, the control that they have over us, the control that's taken years to accomplish. Uh, yeah, Gatto was right and very courageous to go down that road. People need to start thinking outside the box. Why well, are we still doing this? <laughs> exactly. One of the most important questions, and it's very disappointing to me now that I look back through my own experience, and I don't know, feel free to close your eyes if you're in this audience, or you, Tara, feel free to think this over for a moment as I am about to say this, but why do we discourage our youngest, most creative minds, because their brains are growing very fast and neurons are forming and firing at rapid rates. Why do we discourage our youngest people, let alone those who are older that have rediscovered their um, youthful curiosity? Why do we discourage people asking why questions? Think about that. If we have more people asking why questions and or making bolder statements like Mr. Gatto did, I think our um, institutions of our society, of our culture would be more responsive and more um, held to the um, high standards that they should be rather than, well, it's always been done that way. Thank you for showing up. However, we're gonna do the same thing that we plan to do no matter if you spoke or you didn't. Um, And again, it's because the aristocracy the elites in any society. Again, we don't teach history that well anymore. So that's why I'm reemphasizing this point for you and your audience. The elites, the elites in any society, this is not, I mean, the British crown had a lot of control over the American colonials until Treaty of Paris in 1783, right? And then you think about the War of 1812, which popped up less than two decades later and about Three years or so later, we were finished with that conflict too, right? But guess what? The aristocrats, the elites in any society do not relinquish the levers of power, the levers of um, control without 
pushing back, and you can think of all the many examples. Um, you think about the French Revolution, for example. The monarchy took some hits there, but eventually they reasserted control, right? So bottom line is, is we have a lot of the ancestors of these people, since we are a melting pot in America, let alone think of the other Western nations, we have a lot of the distant ancestors of these people who have the multiple masters, the multiple PhDs, all the letters after their name, and they look at someone who may not even have a college degree, as if that's the end-all be-all, and they look at you like you, you don't have the ability to keep up with us. Well, I think that if anything, again, COVID brought us is an opportunity to re-engage our youthful curiosity again, like I said earlier, and ask questions, but don't expect the elite's aristocracy to change anything. Start grassroots, build those communities, build those tribes, whether you create a learning pod, whether you put together a parent's mastermind, whether you um, form your own charter community school, uh, whether you create a homeschool cooperative, don't wait. There's never a better time. You're not going to get all green lights on the highway at the same time. So that would be my further thoughts on that. I hear you. And I'm smiling as you say grassroots. I just wanted to touch on one last thing from Mr. Gatto. He said, I don't teach English. I teach school. And I'm sure by that he meant the routine of going to schools, sitting at a desk, changing subjects when a bell rang and conforming and doing what's expected. And that was probably the saddest part of his speeches to me. <laughs> what do you think of that? Yes, I don't teach English, I teach school. Wow. Yeah. There's another cold slap across the um, metaphorical face, right? Right. But guess what? Some of the most important movements in society, whether we personally agreed with them or not, tend to start when you are awaken from being in your familiar comfort zone. As, I, as many thought leaders teach, no grass goes in the familiar comfort zone. You got to get out of it. And if you just keep saying, well, I went to school, therefore my kids must go to school, therefore I must vote automatically for the levies and bond issues, and I must not question them because they do have the best interest of my kids in mind, I would seriously start to ask some very deep questions and grow your skin thicker because thick skin, soft heart, as opposed to hard heart, thin skin. You need to reverse the, um, reverse the streams there, reverse the polarity. So I think he was very much saying, and think about a few other industries that this hits us in. So I'm going to ask this in the form of a partially rhetorical question. So think about this. Feel free to answer out loud or write it down. Do you believe that the IT industry has an almost impenetrable lingo around it and you feel like you cannot understand it? Yes or no? There's your first. IT, think about it. When you get IT support for your computer or whatnot, right? 
uh, your internet service provider, et cetera, et cetera. Here's another one. When you go into the conventional Western medical industry, do you feel like the physicians and the nurses and the other support staff are speaking a language that you cannot understand? I would say that's a good case for that. Uh, there's this document, last I knew it still existed. If anyone is in your audience that confirms it doesn't exist, I certainly welcome feedback. But the PDR, the Physician's Desk Reference, is a gigantic thick book that would blow away most anyone. And then there's a third one. Think about the banking industry. They use terms that are very difficult to understand. And you're thinking, well, I just want to put my money in an account. I'd like it to earn some interest. I'd like to be able to withdraw it, et cetera, et cetera. And you have this impenetrable lingo around it. Well, what Gatto is saying, and this will call this the fourth example, since I gave you all three of them, he is not teaching conventional, understandable English. He is teaching an impenetrable type of lingo that is school. It should not, please do not make this honest mistake, folks. It is not education. School and education are different concepts. Our school system is so poor at teaching history that you'd have to go back into antiquity primarily. And I did an entire talk on this for a group several years ago. But you have to go back and understand what the root definition of school and education are in Greek and in Latin to understand that you should not intermix them. Because case in point, all those years later, 30 years later for us now, but um, when Gatto said in the early 90s, it was about roughly 1,500 to 2,000 years later. So look at it through both lenses, both past and now, you know, in the context of the 2020s. But he was saying that the lingo is meant to be impenetrable because you are not meant to be a part of the aristocracy elite, which is the delivery mechanism. And Buckminster Fuller, one of my um, unspoken mentors, never met the man, he passed away like Gatto has, he said that it's better to not attempt to address the existing structures in society, create something better, and allow the old to become obsolete. That's where a lot of people make the error, and it's an honest error, is they think they can reform, they think that they can change existing entities where the impenetrable lingo is there. You're not going to change the conventional banking system without a tremendous amount of effort, um, which is why, for example, the blockchain, cryptocurrency, and other things have risen in that area. You're not going to change the mass media, which is why all these alternative outlets are popping up, whether you agree with what they deliver or not, they're at least there. You're not going to change the existing school system very easily, if at all. Learning pods and co-ops and charter community schools, et cetera, are a whole lot better in most every instance. So that's what he was getting at in the early 90s. So there's some thoughts for you and your audience. Thank you, SJ. I think that's a good note to sum it up on. Uh, I like I like the idea of starting new things because, yeah, as as I see it, say, for instance, school board, you know, most are just going along with the prescribed, you know, our school's great. You may get one or two dissenters, but if it's not a majority, then the same thing's going to keep happening. So I agree with you. And I like, well, I'm going to be 
let's just say I'm going to be reading more of your reading list. Absolutely. Um, and I'd be happy to share some more, but I think I, if I remember right, uh, Tara, I think I gave you what, three, four, five suggestions back at the first time. So definitely dig in a little more. And if I can offer any more suggestions to you or your audience, it's my pleasure. Um, because again, I believe that true education, and I may have said this again before, but it's worth repeating as we wrap this up today, there are some very important E-words to remember. Someone who is a parent, a grandparent, a concerned citizen, you know, again, as I use those examples earlier, business owner, et cetera, they should understand that true education is an opportunity to empower. It's an opportunity to encourage. It's an opportunity to inject positive energy. And it's an opportunity to edify those like Gatto who are saying, wait a minute, let's answer these questions not because we want to be disrespectful or snarky or cynical or any of those things, but because questions deserve answers. And if the answers are not to your liking, then change the question. Or if you think you're not going to get anywhere, find something to start from the grassroots, because again, communities are different than networks. So there you go. Exactly. SJ, thank you so much for talking with me today. Absolutely, thank you for the opportunity to share and I trust that I was able to add some um, concrete value. Yes, you were. And uh, hopefully we'll talk again in the future. Be my pleasure, thank you so much.